welcome to City Breaks London, episode 17, Hampstead and Highgate. Welcome back if you've been following along the London series. A special welcome if you're new to us today. I'm Marion Jones and today I'll be taking you on a little wander through one of the posher bits of London. Almost out in the country it is, in search of a little history, some ideas for things to do when you get there... A brief look perhaps at what some of the many, many writers who loved Hampstead have written about it, and generally just in the hope that by the end of the episode you'll have a better idea of what's there and perhaps be fired up to go and see for yourself. I hope that if you do that, you'll feel just that little bit better informed about what you're seeing. OK, so Hampstead then, just a few miles outside central London, but absolutely a unique feel, a village feel really. Think cobbled lanes, steep roads, picturesque houses, oldie-worldy pubs, and, perhaps above all, if you climb up to the top, amazing views from various viewpoints across the whole of London. You can see right out to the Kent coast. You can spot St Paul's and lots of other landmarks, even though you feel as if you've got at least one foot in the country. Virginia Woolf put it quite well. She said, It's always spring in Hampstead. And while that can't possibly be true, I think I know what she means. She was fond of the views. She liked to look out on, quote, bales and trees and ponds and barking dogs and couples sauntering arm in arm and pausing on the hilltop to look at the distant domes and pinnacles of London. The novelist R.L. Stevenson, he of Treasure Island fame, etc., was a Scot, but he knew a thing or two about Hampstead calling it the most delightful place for air and scenery in London. He actually went on to write that, quote, I can't understand how the air is so good. This does not explain itself to me. And with respect, I can inform him, I think it's something to do with being so high up, being away from the city centre, these days, of course, away from all that traffic, and just having a bit more of a chance to breathe. So for those reasons, it's always been popular with the rich and famous. John Constable, no less, lived here. In fact, he's buried in St John's Churchyard in Hampstead. Once you start reading lists of the well-known people who've had connections with Hampstead, you feel there's no end. Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Judy Garland, all sorts of writers, of course, H.G. Wells, D.H. Lawrence, George Orwell. More recently, the actors Judy Dench and Helena Bonham Carter, Sting, Ricky Gervais. It really seems as if if you've made it in film or pop music or writing, this might be where you choose to settle. And I think just knowing that when you go to visit gives the area a certain sort of je ne sais quoi. So I was intrigued to read the write-up of somebody who was new to the area, new to London I think perhaps, one Iqbal Ahmed, who took the tube to Hampstead just to see what it was like, got out on Hampstead High Street, walked past what he described as a jovial guide waiting outside the station for a walking tour group, and took himself to have a look. Quote, I walked downwards towards the heath. The high street looked very nice with its boutiques and brasserie. The men sitting in the bars and cafes wore shorts and hats, but looked rather self-conscious in their casual gear. I stopped for a cup of coffee in one of the cafes. The toilet sign was spelt as toilette to make the cafe look more chic. Without a book or newspaper, I found the atmosphere in the cafe very oppressive, so I left soon after finishing my coffee. An artist displayed a few paintings on the pavement for sale while he worked on a fresh canvas. Close by, a homeless woman sold copies of a magazine to raise money for food. 
Two nannies were pushing strollers up the hill, engaged in conversation. I cut through Devonshire Hill to reach Hampstead Heath. In this road, a stockbroker was operating from a solitary shop with a baroque interior, in which computer screens on desks looked most incongruous. A wine bar was named after a 19th century poet, its tables laid with brilliant white cloths. So yes, Hampstead definitely has its very own atmosphere, but it's also true to say that you will meet a mix of people there, even if I think we can all agree that some of them probably don't actually live there. What about the history then? Where did it all start? It's definitely in the history books as a hamlet in the 13th century, and in the centuries just following that, when the plague was such a problem in London at certain periods, it became a place where Londoners, who could afford it anyway, came to escape, to move away from the crowds and the germs and live somewhere where they felt safer. There's a road in Hampstead today known as Justice Walk, that being the place where the judges from the centre of London came up at times to hold their courts there instead. But as well as being a place to stop just out of town, it was also the last place to stop on your way into town. The drovers bringing flocks of animals down to London to Smithmill Market would find that this was the last place that they could stop and graze their animals, perhaps to fatten them up one last time, before taking them to market. The area just next door, known as Highgate, was called Highgate because that's the place on the main road in down from the north and the Midlands where the toll gate stood. In the 1780s, there were as many as 80 stagecoaches a day driving through. Also, there was a certain notoriety about the place because it was known that you risked being met by a highwayman. And another character, one featured in an earlier episode, in fact, who's got a connection with this area, is one Dick Whittington, who said on his way walking out of London, trudging out because he felt there was nothing for him there, reached Highgate where he stopped because he heard the chimes of Bow Bells advising him to turn again Whittington and promising him that if he did, he would be thrice Lord Mayor of London. You may remember the story from, I think it was episode three, on the City of London, where, in fact, it became clear that he did indeed become the Lord Mayor of London and was elected three times. The area had a bit of a heyday in Georgian times in the 18th century. If you listen to the series I did on the city of Bath, you'll know how popular spas were and how lots of people, including many Londoners, flocked to Bath to drink the spa water, to bathe in it, to enjoy the clean air, etc. And some people realised that actually you could do all of that without travelling so far. You could stay in Hampstead, which would offer you clean air, the restorative qualities of its water, and of course, the chance to see and be seen. The Hampstead authorities worked quite hard to promote this idea. They founded something called the Wells Charity, for example, in 1698. The trustees of the charity very much talked up the medicinal properties of the water, the fact that it contained lots of iron, etc. And they saw to it that things like public houses and lodging houses were put up to cater for the invalids who would come to take the waters and their companions who would come with them. Two of the pubs, for example, were the Upper Flask in Heath Street and the Lower Flask, just off the High Street. There was Well Walk, so an area full of inns and shops and lodging houses. A programme of social activities was arranged, and all in all, by 1724, Hampstead was said to have grown from a little country village to a city. If you go a-wandering, you can certainly spot some 18th century houses. Perhaps the easiest one to find is Burg House, which is now the Hampstead Museum. 
and on Church Row you can find some of the best preserved Georgian houses, described in fact by one Anne Thackeray, daughter of William Makepeace Thackeray of course, who wrote about the avenue of Dutch red-faced houses leading demurely to the old church tower that stands guarding its graves in the flowery churchyard. By the 19th century, Hampstead had very much become day-out territory for Londoners, and was perhaps losing a little bit of its exclusive feel. I enjoyed this diary extract from 1837, written by one William Taylor. I've been to Hampstead with a carriage. It's about six or seven miles out of London. It's where a great many cockneys goes to gypsying and to ride on the jackasses. It's a very pleasant place. The 19th century, of course, saw massive development in most of London, but Hampstead was spared a lot of new housing. I think the builders were put off by the steep slopes of the roads, and so that's why it retains a bit more of the old-world charm than perhaps you find in some other areas of the city. In the 20th century, it was also relatively lucky, escaped most of the wartime bombing, although I did find a diary extract written by George Orwell, who saw what he described as a side street somewhere in Hampstead, with one house reduced to a pile of rubble, and he described seeing how the street had been cordoned off. People were digging to see if there was anyone alive in the rubble, and a line of ambulances was waiting. But on the whole, it wasn't very badly damaged, and so that's another reason why it retains its oldie-worldy feel. So, as already mentioned, you can do guided walks round Hampstead, but if you want to take yourself for a wander, perhaps it will be handy to just have an idea of a few of the things that you could wander past. What you're really doing, I think, is enjoying the steep little streets, the pretty cottages, etc. Certainly go up the high street, which has a whole clutch of Grade 1 listed buildings. I think the number I saw was 11, and where you'll find lots of arty shops and cafes and delis. And if you can find Heath Street, you will arrive at the wonderfully named Hampstead Antique and Craft Emporium, with about 30 different traders selling antiques and jewellery, clothing, ceramics. Don't miss the pubs. Hampstead's always been a place with a lot of pubs, because the through traffic could always be relied upon to produce lots of thirsty customers. One statistic I found was that in 1841, when there were about 700 people living in Hampstead, there were 21 pubs there. Do have a quick look at the clock tower, which is right outside the tube station. Probably the first thing you see when you arrive, if you come by tube. That was once part of the Victorian fire station. Definitely search out some of the pretty roads. The one that all the guidebooks mention is Hollybush Hill. Pretty in its own right and home to to Romney House, which the artist George Romney used as his studio, and which later became the village assembly rooms, where, for example, Constable gave art lectures. Seek out a little road called Admiral's Walk, on which you'll find Admiral's House, which, yes, was built to look a bit like a ship. There's a kind of quarter-deck vibe to the roof. This being the former home of a slightly mad man called Lieutenant Fountain North, who used to make a habit of firing a cannon from the roof to celebrate royal birthdays or perhaps the anniversary of a British naval victory. You may be thinking that sounds quite eccentrically British, or possibly just plain mad, and yes, you'd be right. Or you might be thinking, that sounds rather familiar, and if so, That's probably because you're remembering the wonderful character named Admiral Boom in the Mary Poppins novel by P.L. Travers, and indeed who featured in the film, an ex-naval type who also liked to fire cannons from his roof, and yes, that character was based on 
Lieutenant North from Admiral's House here in Hampstead. Where else to go? Well, I found one piece of advice in a book called London Stories, which is a collection of essays edited by David Tucker and all written by the guides from London Walks. So each chapter, a specialist topic by a guide who knows all about it. Definitely one to seek out, I would say. And David Tucker himself has written the article on Old Hampstead Village. I think he lives there and he certainly guides walks there. If you go on a London walk round Hampstead, you'll probably find he is your guide. And this is his advice about somewhere you should definitely see, but are in danger of missing. Whatever you do, don't miss Mansfield Place. Two little rows of 19th century cottages, and the cottage gardens are exquisite, as is the bowered footpath running between the two rows of cottages. Figs, grapes, hops, apples, plums, pears, let alone raptures of flowers. You really do feel as though you've tumbled down a wormhole and come out in the 19th century. So yes, there are definitely corners where you will feel a million miles from central London, although in fact you're only a handful of miles from same. Whatever route you take, whatever you do or don't see, definitely, definitely also go right up to the top for that view. A view which John Constable himself, the artist, was very pleased with when he moved to Hampstead. Describing the cottage he'd bought, he wrote, This little house is to my wife's heart's content. Our little drawing room commands a view unsurpassed in Europe, from Gravesend to Westminster Abbey. A view described both rapturously and prosaically by Virginia Woolf, who wrote of its, quote, dominant domes, its guardian cathedrals, its chimneys and spires, its cranes and gasometers. So yes, a place from which to see the whole of London spread out beneath your feet, and from where you can overlook the whole of the city right down to the coast. If you want to lose yourself for an hour or two, or even a whole day or longer, then Hampstead Heath is right there. 800 acres or so, a couple of dozen ponds, some of which you can swim in, a place to walk or cycle or picnic. Enjoy the woods and breathe in some of that lovely fresh air. If you're not venturing right onto the heath, you might still take a look at Whitestone Pond at the edge of the village and ponder how, in the days when the main way to get out to Hampstead was by horse and carriage, those horses and carriages would be driven up through this pond to refresh the horses and also to dampen the dehydrated wooden carriage wheels so that both horses and carriages were ready for the long downhill slog back to London. If you want to do more than just wander about, there are certainly lots of places where you could stop off and go inside. Berg House, for example, now Hampstead Museum, an art gallery and a place full of local history where you can learn, for example, more about the area in its spa town heyday. Or you could visit Fenton House, a National Trust property, with its beautiful walled garden, 300 years old or more, and its lovely collection of early musical instruments. Concerts too, I believe. Then there's the very romantic cemetery in St John's Church, originally from the 14th century, although rebuilt, I believe, in the 18th century. The last resting place of John Constable, the artist. There's the Freud Museum, in a house in which Freud lived when he fled Vienna, and where in fact he died in 1939. The house has been turned into a museum, and left pretty much as it was when Freud himself was living here, so you can look, for example, round his study, and see the psychiatrist's couch, which I think was brought all the way from Vienna when he moved here. 
But especially, especially if I had to recommend one place to visit in Hampstead, I would go for Keats's house, where he lived from the years 1818 to 1820, where he wrote some of his very finest poetry, the Ode to a Grecian Urn or the Ode to a Nightingale, and where he was living until the illness which was to kill him struck him and he moved in search of warmer climes to Rome, hoping that would cure him, but from where, in fact, he never returned. It was in this house that his neighbours were the Braun family, so it's the place where he met Fanny Braun and fell in love with her. It's one of those lovely reflective places where you can actually feel quite close to the person who lived there all that time ago. Here's Christopher Wynne, author of London by Tube, describing what he found when he went to visit. The house is laid out as in Keats's day, with displays of memorabilia such as Keats's letters to Fanny, some of the books he wrote poetry in, Charles Brown's copy of Keats's Endymion, A Thing of Beauty is a Joy Forever, and items of Fanny Braun's jewellery, including her engagement ring from Keats, and a medallion containing a lock of Keats's hair. Visitors can wander in the gardens, where Keats walked with Fanny, and see the mulberry tree, beneath which, according to Charles Brown, Keats wrote Ode to a Nightingale. I read somewhere else that Fanny in fact wore her engagement ring for the rest of her life even after she married and went on to have three children. You can walk all round the house too. You can go into Keats's parlour, for example, look out through the French windows onto the garden, just as he must have done so many times. There are bookcases containing books that it's known he read and owned, things like Burton's Anatomy. He'd been a medical student, of course, before he took to poetry. The works of Moliere, the poet Spencer, a copy of the Iliad, and complete Shakespeare, which apparently he used to carry with him wherever he went. Virginia Woolf was a visitor there too, and she also wrote about her findings. Quote, the rooms are small but shapely. Downstairs the long windows are so large that half the wall seems made of light. Two chairs turned together are close to the window, as if someone had sat there reading and had just got up and left the room. The figure of the reader must have been splashed with shade and sun, as the hanging leaves stirred in the breeze. Birds must have hopped close to his foot. The room is empty, save for the two chairs, for Keats had few possessions, little furniture, and not more, he said, than a 150 books. So yes, my ideal day in Hampstead, I think, would be a bit of wandering, a poke around the little shops, tea in one of the cafes, and a visit to the Keats house. And in nearby Highgate, there's one main reason for going there, and that's to visit the cemetery. London's best-known cemetery, really the London equivalent of the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, if you're familiar with that. A place I've seen referred to as a tomb with a view, gothic, quite overgrown, said, in fact, to have been the inspiration for Bram Stoker's Dracula novel. It, or in fact they, for its two cemeteries, the East and the West, date from the 19th century when it was realised that something had to be done about burial grounds in London. Space was running out, new cemeteries would be needed, a little further out of the city. One was built at Kensal Green, and then this one in Highgate. And I found some great descriptions of it in a book called Necropolis, by Catherine Arnold, who was keen to stress, really, two different things about the cemetery. It's very Victorian feel, and also its Gothic revival vibe. She writes, for example, Two chapels flank a gateway on Swain's Lane, 
which bear the words London Cemetery and feature impressive iron gates. The twin chapels, one for Anglicans, one for dissenters, situated on either side of the entrance, comply with the classical rules of symmetrical design. OK, so, so far, so predictable, perhaps stayed. But the man who designed it in the 1830s, Stephen Geary, certainly added an extra layer. Here's Catherine Arnold again. Once the classical layout was in situ, Geary was free to play around with his own interpretation of Gothic revival, one which can only be described as Tudorbethan. The octagonal chapels feature spiral staircases, stained glass bay windows, lancet windows, as used by archers to repel invaders, steep gables and bristling pinnacles. You can visit the eastern half just by yourself, but for the western part you usually have to go on a guided tour. The sad fact is that this part of the cemetery has not only attracted people who just want to have a look, it's also been prone to vandalism, so that in the end the Society Friends of Highgate Cemetery decided it would have to be closed and only open to the public with a guide. It is worth just checking that out, because I think I did read recently a comment from somebody saying that they had in fact been allowed in with a map to take themselves round. The two halves are a little different. The original part is the West Cemetery, designed in the 19th century in quite a dramatic way. It has a central avenue, Egyptian avenue. Egyptology, of course, was undergoing a bit of a boom in the 19th century. And if you walk up there, you'll pass vaults on either side, which contain up to 12 coffins each, until you reach an area known as the Circle of Lebanon, in which the central main feature is a giant cedar tree. I think the thing to do really is wander a little, but if you want ideas for graves that you could look out for, I picked out three. Firstly, the two Elizabeths, one Elizabeth Jackson, buried in May 1839, the very first person actually to be buried in Highgate Cemetery. And her story is a little window into what life was like for the less well-off in that era in London. She died at the age of 36 from consumption. She'd lived in the very crowded area of Soho, where the sanitary conditions were dreadful, and sadly was really quite unexceptional to die at such an early age. We know too that her husband later died of a cholera outbreak, presumably for all the same gloomy and yet rather predictable reasons. Another Elizabeth buried in the same cemetery is Elizabeth Siddle, who was the wife of the poet Rossetti, and about whom guides will always tell you the story that Rossetti himself was so upset to lose his wife that he had her buried with his only copy of the love poems he'd written for her. But that, in fact, seven years later, he had them all dug up so that he could have them published. A good thing, I think you'll agree, otherwise we wouldn't have them today. A third person buried here is one Julius Beer, who in fact is in the largest and grandest of all the monuments in Highgate. Julius Beer had made a lot of money on the London Stock Exchange. He'd been at one point the owner of the Observer newspaper, and so he was able to leave instructions and money to make sure that for him and his family a very grand monument would be built. The detail that stuck in my mind when I read about him was the fact that he had lost his daughter at the age of eight. Again, quite usual for the 19th century, she died of scarlet fever. And so it was for that reason that the idea of leaving this grand monument behind for himself and his family was so close to his heart. The East Cemetery was built a little later than the western half in the 1850s, an expansion, if you will, 19 acres or so, 
not quite so overgrown, a bit less dramatic, but notable in particular for being the place where you can find Karl Marx's tomb. You'll know it when you see it, because there is a ginormous bronze sculpture of Marx himself, 12 feet high, I believe, the fruits of a huge fundraising effort by the Communist Party. So the statue's there, and on the plinth, the words, Workers of all lands unite, which of course is taken from the Communist Manifesto. I don't think Highgate is quite such a place to wander as Hampstead is, but if you do go and have a look, you might find things like the Gatehouse Pub, its name being a reminder of the Tollgate, through which visitors to Highgate used to pass in the old days. There's Highgate School too, I think it's still a school, so you can't look round, but you might like to know that it's a building in which T.S. Eliot, no less a person, was once a teacher, and where other poets, Gerard Manley Hopkins and John Betjeman, in fact, were pupils. In fact, I think I may have read that Eliot actually taught Betjeman. And before we leave Hampstead and Highgate, there is one last story that I'd like to tell, which I actually only discovered quite recently, and which I find very intriguing. And that is the connection between Hampstead and spies. And it all revolves around a building in Hampstead known as the Isacon Building in Lawn Road, which opened in 1934. It was an experimental building. It was an experiment in city living, just very different from anything which had come before. So built following the principles of the Bauhaus movement, very different from the rest of Hampstead, of course. White, smooth, curved walls, futuristic, bit of a scandy feel inside, so clean, stripped back, not much furniture, etc. It opened in 1934, hoping to attract the sort of modern thinker who wanted to live an uncluttered life, a simple life, if you like. And so it proved. The area was already a centre for left-wing intellectuals with its connections to the Freud family and George Orwell. And certain members of the cultural elite, let's call them, were attracted to live in this building. For example, the painter and sculptor Henry Moore, the Bauhaus architect Walter Gropius, Agatha Christie. She moved in in 1941, spent six years there and apparently loved it. But the spy connection, that's because of the resident of Flat 7, who lived there in the 1930s, one Dr Arnold Deutsch. Perhaps not a name that you know on first hearing, but let me tell you that he is the man believed to have recruited all five of the known Cambridge spies, names you probably do know, Kim Philby, Guy Burgess, Donald Maclean, etc. The building today is looked after by the Isacon Gallery Trust, whose director, Magnus England, tells us that, quote, at least four documented USSR spies lived in this building in the 1930s. The author David Burke wrote a book about this, and he managed to find details of no fewer than 11 people with links to the Russian intelligence living there in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. And evidence too that other Russian spies lived in nearby flats and houses in the area. And as he points out, OK, so the spying connections mainly date from the 1930s and Agatha Christie didn't move in until 1941. But, he wonders, can it be a total coincidence that it was living in that building that she wrote her only spy novel? Enigmatically entitled. Of course, spy novels all have to have enigmatic titles, don't they? And this one was N or M? Question mark. So, is it possible that she knew something about this? We don't know. If you want to find out more about this intriguing story, I have several recommendations. Firstly, two books, The Lawn Road Flats, 
subtitled Spies, Writers and Artists by David Burke, and a book by Stuart Purvis entitled Guy Burgess, The Spy Who Knew Everyone. Alternatively, you could go on a guided walk led by Stuart Purvis himself. He will tell you about the MI5 files which he researched to dig into the story, which enabled him, as he puts it himself, to find out who was watching whom before and during the Cold War. The blurb advertising the walk can be found on the London Walks website, and we are promised that we will see some of the files, see some of the houses mentioned in them, hear all about how there are connections in the area to George Orwell, to John le Carré, to Ian Fleming, and, quote, will walk a street of spies where the KGB ran three separate operations. Access has been arranged to one of their London hubs. We'll go inside, and one Cold War name will keep coming up. Hampstead boy turned Soviet super spy, Kim Philby. The real thing is better than any spy thriller. I defy you not to be intrigued by that. I'll put the two book titles and the London Walks details in the show notes. So if you do want to know more, you know where to go and look. What it all adds up to is the idea that one day will not be enough to give proper attention to even the highlights of Hampstead and Highgate, but I hope I've given you lots of ideas to choose from, perhaps sowed the seed of an idea that you might want to go more than once, and left you perhaps a little better informed than you would otherwise have been. So that's it for today then. Next week is a little pause in the London series, because there'll be another City Break Ideas episode. I'm going to trawl three other websites, travel websites, for ideas for city breaks, with their owner's permission, of course. And then the following week, we'll be continuing the tour of London, going, in fact, to Greenwich. Another area, I think, where a day won't be enough, but where there's plenty to talk about, to make, I hope, an episode full of interesting ideas. So I hope that you will be able to join me for that. And for today, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.